This is the podcast, Notable Speeches, and we thank you for being with us. This time, a speech about a growing concern among political and social conservatives, namely the rise of so-called woke capital. That refers to companies, many of them massive in size, that are giving hefty support, both financially and through cultural influence, to progressive political and social causes. As one reporter noted, the culture war, long active on college campuses and in political circles, has reached the C-suite. That refers to the executive inner circle of businesses, including the CEO, the CFO, and so on. This address is by author J.D. Vance, most known for his 2016 best-selling book Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. He is also the co-founder of a venture capital firm based in his home state of Ohio. Last month, Mr. Vance delivered the keynote address at a conference titled What to Do About Woke Capital, sponsored by the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. It is that speech you will hear now, abridged slightly for this podcast. Here is author J.D. Vance, recorded May 18, 2021, in Arlington, Virginia, just across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. I thought I'd start today by sketching out a vision for how I see what we should be about in the conservative movement in the 21st century, because I think it's useful to anchor ourselves not just in first principles, but in the lives of the people affected by those principles. And then I'll talk about why woke capital, I think, is is such a problem and what's going on. My view of what the conservative movement should be about is pretty simple and pretty straightforward. I think that we should fight for the right of every American to live a good life in the country they call their own, to raise a family in dignity on a single middle-class job. It's a simple vision that if you work hard and play by the rules, you should be able to live a good life in this country that is your own, that was built by your grandparents and parents, that will be inherited by your children. Now, it's, of course, co- more complicated in some ways than it, than it sounds. I think that requires that we respect our history in order to give that to people so that people are anchored in the traditions of this country so that they can teach their children those traditions and so they can pass off a feeling of rootedness in their own community. That's why, of course, we worry about the assault on our history in our schools. I think it requires that we give our children and ourselves the right to speak openly and participate meaningfully in this democratic society of ours. That's why we worry so much about censorship, whether it comes from the government or whether it comes from the big corporations. I think that it requires that we live and have work that has dignity and is meaningful. That's why we worry about our trade and economic policies, so that the people who do work hard and play by the rules actually have good jobs there to employ them. It's why we worry about our foreign policy, so that we don't send people to wars that have no connection to our national interest and end up depleting our country of its most useful resource, the young men and women who fight for our military. All of these things, all of the battles that we fight, as complicated as they are, affect and implicate this question of whether we're enabling the people, the citizens of this country, to live a good life in their own, in their own nation. Now, I happen to believe that the biggest obstacle to this, the biggest obstacle to accomplishing this vision is woke capital, which of course is the topic of conversation today. And I believe that those of us on the right need to wake up to what's really going on because in practice, we have lost, and I hate to sound cynical, 
think I'm just being realistic. We have lost nearly every institution in this country that actually matters. We've lost the academy. We have lost the media. We have now lost the government. And we have lost the business and financial institutions, too. That's what woke capital is really about. If we're trying to define this term and understand what it means, it's rooted in the fact that the biggest businesses, the most powerful institutions, the most powerful banks in this country have aligned themselves against us. Now, that is an obvious fact. You see it in a number of ways. A couple of years ago, uh, one of my, my most frustrating or one of the, the, the things I've been most frustrated about in American politics is when Stacey Abrams said about a Georgia restriction, abortion restriction a couple of years ago that this was a bad bill because it was bad for business. That was the argument of our new corporate neoliberal class. And she was right. And this is something those of us on the right have to accept is that when the big corporations come against you for passing abortion restrictions, when corporations are so desperate for cheap labor that they don't want people to parent children, she's right to say that abortion restrictions are bad for business. And what that means for those of us who want to protect the dignity of the unborn is that we should be for abortion restrictions even if they are bad for business. We should support the dignity of human life even if it means the corporate class doesn't like it. That is a simple and unavoidable fact of the era that we find ourselves in. But I think no moment illustrated what woke capital meant for our country than the riots last summer tied to the Black Lives Matter or BLM movement. Now, we all know the ideology that underpins this movement. We all know what happened. In Minneapolis alone, I believe $13 billion of damage were caused, was caused by the riots set off by the Black Lives Matter movement. Woke capital is when the companies and businesses are more invested in a movement like BLM than traditional American principles, and they are. And importantly, if you peel back the onion, what you often find is that the businesses that are most connected and most devoted to destroying our values are also benefiting financially from it. Let me give you just a couple of examples. The insurance companies in Minneapolis who saw billions of wealth, black and white, destroyed by those riots, have consistently underpaid the premiums to the owners of those businesses who had their livelihoods destroyed. In one example, a guy had to pay $140,000 to have the rubble from the business that he built carted off by the city of Minneapolis and his insurance company reimbursed him to the tune of about $40,000. That's just one example that I read. Now, who was one of the biggest funders of the Black Lives Matter movement? The insurance companies. They avoided the criticism that they weren't paying their own clients for their own damaged property, while at the same time, they were making that damage more likely by funding the movement that was causing it. And increasingly, if you look at the details, if you peel back the onion, this is happening. The best example, of course, is Jeff Bezos, one of the largest funders of the Black Lives Matter movement in this country, to the tune of millions of dollars. Now, who benefits most when small businesses on Main Street are destroyed? Who wants to see their competitors unable to deliver goods and services to people so that you get it delivered in your brown Amazon box? Jeff Bezos, there is a direct connection between woke capital and the plunder that's happening in our society today. The people who are invested in destroying America via our corporate class are also getting rich from it. This is an important piece of the puzzle to understand. 
Now, why is this happening? I think this is a really important question. I know that we have had some, some very good conversations today about what's driving it and what's going on. But I want to offer three suggestions for what's driving woke capital. I'll try to be brief here. The first is the rise of the digital over the real economy. If you look at the companies that are most woke, that are most aggressively anti-American and anti-conservative, they are the companies that operate in the digital as opposed to the real economy. If you're manufacturing something, if you depend on cheap energy, if you're building something with your hands or employing those who do, if you're shipping goods from one part of the country to another, you are fundamentally less woke than the digital technology oligarchy that's trying to destroy the country. You see this consistently. Now, sometimes, of course, those companies can be woke too, and sometimes there are some digital technology entrepreneurs who are not woke. But by and large, the digitalization of the American economy is one of the biggest drivers to the American corporate class becoming woke. It's consistent, you see it everywhere, uh, and it's a big problem. A second suggestion, or a second thing that's driving this, is the rise of globalization. So the companies that are most invested in the American nation state, in the people who live here, in the laborers that build and make our goods, those people tend to be far less woke than the people who are employed, who are employing people overseas, who are more invested and more, con more committed to overseas regimes. Now, I've heard of a banker who was asked by a union leader, don't you worry about all the projects that you're funding that are causing destruction of American jobs? You're shipping jobs overseas, you're funding the Chinese regime, you're making it easier for the Chinese middle class to rise and harder for the middle class of your own country. And the banker's response was telling, and I think we should take it to heart. He said, I have international shareholders. I have international customers. I have international investors. And I have international clients. I am not an American company. Why do I care about America more than anyone else? That attitude is driving a lot of the woke corporate class. Because when you're invested in American workers, when you depend on American customers, when American consumers have more power over you than the Chinese regime, if your laborers are people in my hometown in Middletown, Ohio, and not Chinese slaves over in China, then you are fundamentally more attached to the American nation state, you can't criticize it in the same way, and you face different incentives. So the rise of globalization, the rise of a new corporate class that's more invested in regimes overseas than in their own country is another big driver of woke capital. And the final thing I'd point to is that the capital allocators themselves are going woke. This is the third and maybe the most important point that I'll make. All across our country, we have nonprofits, big foundations that are effectively social justice hedge funds. The Ford Foundation has $14 billion in assets under management. Their leadership is serving on many of our corporate boards. And of course, the corporate boards of some of our biggest companies are serving as the leadership of the Ford Foundation. The biggest projects that they're investing in are critical race theory. They're investing in the racial division all across our country. They're invested in all of the progressive social causes of the moment. One of the biggest investors to the Black Lives Matter movement that destroyed many of our towns and cities last summer. Now, if I want to sell my house, or if a middle-class American wants to sell their house and they make, say, $200,000 on the sale, they have to pay tax 
on that $200,000 of money that they made. But if the Ford Foundation sells $200 million of real property in an investment transaction, they pay zero tax because our public policy has enriched and prioritized the foundations and the nonprofits that are destroying our country. Now, why does this matter? This matters because if you're in my business, I work in venture capital, if you work in private equity, if you're a hedge fund manager, or if you're just a business that needs money to operate your business, you have to go to these people to get the capital to do what you need to do. And of course, the biggest capital allocator, or at least one of the biggest capital allocators in the world, is that woke social justice hedge fund known as Harvard University which has over $120 billion under management, which funds some of the most destructive ideologies all across our country, which literally trains the next generation of priests in the woke seminary that's dominating our professional class. That university's endowment pays not a dollar of tax. It has no obligation to draw down the principal. It is literally ammunition for the left. And we, through our public policy, have given that endowment more power. Now this raises the question, of course, what do we do about this? And I don't mean this to be exhaustive. I can't possibly sketch out everything that we have to do on the question of woke capital. But I think there are some obvious solutions and it should start from a fundamental premise that if you are fighting the American nation state, if you are fighting the values and virtues that make this country great, the conservative movement should be about nothing if not reducing your power and, if necessary, destroying you. We cannot let the people who are driving this country into the ground continue to benefit from special privileges, from tax breaks, from subsidies, and from liability protections. That is the simple rule that we should follow. $120 billion of Harvard University endowment is ammunition for our enemies. And we can't let the enemy have that much ammunition or we're going to lose. It's that simple. This principle should guide all of our policy response. If you cannot go after the pocketbook of these people, if you cannot make them pay, then you are accepting defeat. It's that simple. We're never going to beat them unless we go after them. A few ideas on this front. The first is that we should eliminate all of the special privileges that exist for our nonprofit and foundation class. Why is it that if you're spending all your money to teach literal racism to our children and their schools, why do we give you special tax breaks instead of taxing you more? If we're serious about fighting this problem, why do we give the companies, and by the way, the foundations are used by liberal donors as tax havens for themselves. When Biden raises taxes, they won't pay the brunt of this. They'll give all that money to the foundation. The foundation will use it to push their progressive agenda. They'll be saved from the consequences of the tax increase, even as it will empower institutions that hate us. We need to stop that. The decision to give those foundations and those organizations special privileges is a decision made by public policy. It was made by man, and we can undo it. We just need better public policy and a willingness to actually go after them. We need to reorient our entire economy towards the real economy and not the digital economy. It is striking how much the digital economy dominates in our public policy. To give you just one basic example, there's a high quality manufacturer in central Ohio that makes natural gas compressors. Their corporate tax rate, like everyone else's, is 21%. Ask them what their effective tax rate is, and they'll tell you, it's 21%. The reason is because they can't hide their assets. 
They can't pretend that their assets exist somewhere else. They're making things in the state of Ohio, employing good Americans in good American jobs to do it. Ask Google or Apple or Facebook what their effective tax rate is, and it's somewhere between 0 and 10% because they can pretend that their digital assets are located overseas. So our very tax code biases the companies that are most invested in the American nation state. That has to stop. We should have a different preference and a different goal. Go after the companies that are destroying this country. Reward the companies that are building it. It's that simple. That's what public policy is about. And if we're unwilling to use those levers, we should get out of this business altogether. The globalization point has been beaten to death in the last five years, but I'll beat it to death a little bit more because I think it's important. Recall that banker and what he said about his international customers, shareholders, and employees. We should take that person at face value. If that person doesn't believe that he's an American institution or part of an American institution, we should treat him like that. If you are more invested in regimes that hate this country, if you're more invested in workers in slave camps in China than the people in my hometown, no more tax breaks, no more tax cuts. We should be raising their taxes if they're shipping American jobs overseas, not cutting them. That's how you fight them. That's how you fight them at the pocketbook. And that's how you make them pay. It's that simple. Globalization was a choice. It was a choice that we made to make it cheaper to hire Chinese slaves than American workers. It's not cheaper for our country. It's not cheaper for the people suffering from heroin overdose deaths at record numbers in our country or for the millions of children growing up without fathers in the home. We made the choice to destroy our communities. We let the Chinese do this. It was our elite's fault, and only public policy is going to fix that problem. A lot of other things out there. I think it's important to go after the human resources bureaucracy, of course. If you are actively teaching racism in American schools, in American corporations, if you're creating a hostile work environment because you have to tell everybody that they need to deconstruct their privilege or they need to sacrifice or repent of their whiteness, then you're committing what should be a violation of the law in this country and people should be able to sue you. We have used the human rights bureaucracy to enforce critical race theory on our corporate class. We could use it to enforce the opposite. Again, we just have to be willing to use the power that's been given to us and go after these companies where it actually hurts. I'll say one final thing, and then I'll let all of you get out of here. I'm a realist, but I'm also very hopeful about this country because we have a constitution, and we have a constitutional republic created by that constitution, and that gives the people, that gives us the power to fight back against woke capital. Every time, and I get so annoyed at this, that I see congressional Republicans haul Google or Facebook or Amazon or whoever it is before their committees, they whine at them, they complain at them, they criticize their practices, but we're so unwilling as a movement to actually do anything. It's not enough to, say, to tell Google, you're being bad. Clearly, they don't stop being bad. We have to punish them for being bad. If they're going to keep on fighting against us, then we have to fight against them. That's simple. We have to be willing to use the power granted to us by our constitutional republic. 
I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes. It's an Abraham Lincoln quote from 1862, of course, at a period in this country that was much darker than the one that we confront today. The fiery trials through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. It may not be as bad as it was in the 1860s, but we're all going through a fiery trial. The people in this room are the people who are going to be at the vanguard of a conservative movement that actually fights back against our enemies instead of just taking it. Now, I was the butt of criticism made in the high-quality conservative journal called The Dispatch. I'm not sure if it was Goldberg uh, or, or David French that criticized me, but the criticism was, you, J.D. Vance, are too willing to use the means of the left. You want to accomplish a totally different vision of society, but you're willing to use the means that they're willing to use. And I think about that quote, my friends, it's so revealing of how so much of the establishment conservative movement thinks. Because if our enemies are using guns and bazookas, we damn well better fight back with more than wet noodles. We need to use the same means if we're actually going to win this fight. And I'm not in this to lose. I'm in this to win. But this is our country. The people of this country, whether they know it or not, they depend on the institutions of the conservative movement to accomplish their objectives, to serve their interests, to make this country the sort of place where a good guy working hard and playing by the rules can raise his family as he sees fit on a single middle class wage. That's our vision, and it's up to the people in this room to accomplish it. So I remind you of Lincoln's words we have the power in this country. We have the power in this constitutional republic. And we bear the responsibility to use it to save this country. Let's get to work. Thank you. Author and venture capitalist J.D. Vance speaking last month at a conference sponsored by the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. The Claremont Institute is a California-based think tank its mission, quoting now, is to restore the principles of the American founding to their rightful, preeminent authority in our national life. You can subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast via your favorite podcast app, and your comments and suggestions are welcome. Email feedback at notablespeeches.com. I'm Joseph Slife. <laughs>